We're in a series in the Gospel of John that we've titled, Come and See. And this thread continues in our text today as Jesus encounters a skeptical woman from a foreign land who will go on to invite all those in her town to come and see. Is this Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah? We've been reminded again and again in our time in the gospel that there are all sorts of skeptics, from religious skeptics like Nicodemus a couple weeks back to non-Jewish foreign skeptics such as the woman that we read about today. And the heart of the problem for the woman of Samaria today we'll see is one of ignorance, not knowing what she worshipped. The condition then of her heart, of her soul, led to stress and despair. The Samaritan woman of our text, she had a hard life. In many ways, a social outcast of sorts as a divorced woman, a member of a certain society viewed by many with animosity, despised by some, filled presumably with hurt and shame. You know, commentators will note that rather than with a group, she probably came to the well alone in the heat of the day because of the shame that she was carrying with her. She needed God's gift, what Jesus offered her. But you know, there's other conditions too that we'll see from this same root with different expressions of the heart, such as a heart of pride, Pride which would look down on this woman to say that she indeed is too far away to feel empathy for her. And to be sure, though it might look different, our soul's deepest need is the same. And thanks be to God that Jesus came for sinners, for sufferers, for skeptics. His invitation is to all who will respond and come to him, just as his disciples did and as this woman at the well did. So here's a summary of sorts, Lord willing, of what we'll see today. True worship is seeing God clearly with the eyes of our hearts as he has revealed himself in his word, and to then respond appropriately, living fully satisfied in him. So let's turn to the text. As we resume with John, our guide, he picks up in this narrative, retelling the accounts of Jesus. And John highlights a transition. We're moving from one location now to another. Like any reading of a narrative, noting the setting is vital to our understanding, and certainly this is true of our passage today. So John lays out the setting, the context for us in the first six verses. As he notes, the gospel was being preached in the countryside of Judea, which is the southern region of Israel, housing the holy city of Jerusalem which at the time, too, was under the rule of the Roman Empire. And disciples were being baptized in response to their belief in Jesus. 
John makes a point to include the detail that although the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more and more disciples, Jesus himself was not baptizing, but only his disciples. Now we might ask, why did Jesus himself not baptize? Well, a clue at least, I think we can turn back to earlier in John's account in chapter 1, where we see, I, John the Baptist speaking here, myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In a way, this foreshadows our text today, highlighting the central theme that Jesus, the Son of God, offers life with God by way of the Spirit of God. So after Jesus learned that the Pharisees, which we can characterize at least in one way, as seen throughout the Gospels, as religious and political opponents to Jesus and his mission, what he came to do, they were learning about his ministry. And so he decided the time was right to depart and to head back to the northern region of Galilee, where he performed his first sign in John's gospel, turning water into wine at Cana. But our encounter this morning takes place before he arrives there. It takes place during his travels. As he's heading up north from the southern region of Judea, Jesus had to pass through the region of Samaria to get to Galilee, as verse 4 explains. And in a town in Samaria called Sychar, Jesus stopped to rest. A well was there, Jacob's well. The setting is what establishes now then the conversation, this interaction that is to come. In verse 7, we read, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. We read of this encounter between Jesus and a woman. And John, in giving this account, gives explanation. He gives further context to the readers here to understand. What context is John giving us? He calls the reader to the awareness of the relationship between Jewish people and the people of Samaria. This first came out, though, in the response of the Samaritan woman to Jesus' request for a drink. How and why are you a Jewish man asking me for something like this? So we are no longer in Judea. We are in the region of Samaria. And John says in the text that they, quote-unquote, have no dealings with each other. How do we understand this? As is alluded, again, there is enmity between the two peoples politically, religiously, culturally. In contrast to the Jews, the Samaritan people, deriving their name from the city of Samaria, 
specifically were those from the northern region. And after Israel split into two kingdoms, after the Assyrian Empire came and conquered and exiled many, some remained in the region and would intermarry with those newly residing foreigners. As the Old Testament warned, this Jewish intermarrying with the surrounding nations, the Gentiles at this time, would lead ultimately to the worship of their foreign gods. The Samaritans had forsaken their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So worship, worship was one key distinction between the Jewish and the Samaritan people. Historically, as one commentator notes, the Samaritan shrine on Mount Gerizim, just built as an alternative to worship in the temple of Jerusalem, it was destroyed by Judea in 128 B.C., a primary cause of the antagonism between Samaritans and Jews. Furthermore, theologically, one great difference was the Samaritan scriptures, which consisted of the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. However, Jesus' scriptures included the Torah, the prophets, the writings, such as the Proverbs, wisdom literature, or poetry of the Psalms the same Old Testament that we have in our Bibles today. But in short, to understand the heart of the animosity and destruction, the depth of this distrust between these two people, another commentator notes, listen to this, within a generation, he says, Jewish leaders would codify a law that reflected long-standing popular sentiment to the effect that all daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from the cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. This woman, a daughter of the Samaritans, is the one whom this Jewish man, Jesus, asks for a drink of water. Some translators render the meaning of the Greek in verse 8 here, as we've heard it read, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans to be, for Jews do not use dishes Samaritans use. Jesus is asking to share a cup with one who many would characterize as ceremonially unclean. Cleanliness, a requirement to approach God and tradition, ceremonial, corporate acts of worship. Jesus approaches her. Such an interaction results in shock for her and later, as we'll see, for her disciples as well. Now, before we get to Jesus' response in verse 10, again, given the context then of Samaria, we should remind ourselves of how Jesus engages this woman before we see where he goes. Right away, the woman's skepticism is revealed. Okay, if nothing else, shaped by her context, her upbringing in Samaria, who is this Jewish man and what is he doing? She asks. The exchange begins with a simple request brought about by circumstances. 
Very practically speaking, he is thirsty after his travels and finds himself at a well. So he asks the woman who is there alone with him for a drink. And again, Jesus can hear her skepticism. And as the master teacher, evangelist, yes, but also shepherd, he cares about her soul. So what does he do? Jesus invites the woman to consider for a moment her external environment through the senses to reveal her inner reality. Jesus uses the concrete, what's around her, their setting, water from the well, to give a gospel illustration, teaching. He simply asks for water, and upon hearing her response in the form of a question, listen to what Jesus says. And we'll see throughout this exchange that Jesus subverts her expectations to fulfill ultimately what he came to do to meet her deepest need. So verse 10, we hear Jesus answer the woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A fundamental misunderstanding is revealed here. What is she missing? Jesus says that she does not know the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to her, which is to say that she is ignorant about Jesus' true identity. If she saw Jesus clearly for who he is, her response would be drastically different. This gift of God. Reference here in verse 10 can be linked with what Jesus is saying, that he would be giving her living water. Now, what made water living? It was understood that water that came from a spring that was flowing or, or moving, as opposed to stagnant water or puddle water. This was living water. Living water was clean. It was drinkable. It was desirable. And again, in the context where we're at in this dry and arid land, water's value was well known. It's essential for all of life, but here especially so. You know, water is, water is amazing. And sometimes I think that we forget this. I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton, remarking on the value of story, speaks about water in this way. He says, fairy tales, they make rivers run with wine, only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water. Similarly, influenced by Chesterton in many ways, C.S. Lewis helps us understand that good stories don't move us to retreat from reality. Rather, they help us rediscover reality. They help us to see the world that God created, to see our own lives in light of that with awe and wonder in relation to the Creator one of the values of story of art to help us see. Water is 
a great gift God gives us to meet physical needs. Okay, so consider for a moment then your experience in a desert, if you've been to one, great. Uh, If not, let's use our imaginations though. It's hot. Here in the story, it's midday when the sun is beating down. You're sweaty. You're uncomfortable. You're parched. Weary. I mean, the text says even the Son of God was weary here. And it is in this environment which Jesus, noting the external realities, draws out the truth known deep in this woman's heart, such as deep waters being drawn from a well. As our bodies are weary in desert land without water, so too our souls are weary without God. This is what Jesus brings to the surface in just a few words as he greets this woman of Samaria. To be sure, Jesus knew what he was doing here because living water isn't just something relevant before them. Living water is also a rich biblical metaphor found in the Old Testament. It's an artistic theme and thread which runs all the way even into and through our New Testament to the end of the Bible. Consider then the hopeful foreshadowing of Isaiah 44.3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon my offering, offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Given that this woman was a Samaritan, she presumably would not have known this scripture. Or consider the prophet Jeremiah. Now this passage might point to Jesus and interpret what he is saying. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Living water is used in the scriptures to represent newness of spiritual life, life with God. Or to use language from John's gospel, eternal life, given by way of the Spirit of God. And who is the source of this living water? Who gives this gift of life? It's implied in Jesus' response. He is ready to give. What is the precondition, though, for receiving it? It is to know your thirst. To feel your spiritual thirst, your soul's need for God. However, at this point in the interaction, the woman of Samaria's complete misunderstanding leads her to respond by thinking that Jesus is still talking about material and literal water. Verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep, she says. Where do you get the living water? Jesus goes On to explain further, look at verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There is another clarifying distinction Jesus makes here. The water before them, if you drink it, it will make you thirsty again. However, the water that Jesus is talking about, this living water, 
which he gives totally and completely satisfies your thirst. This picture of water is an inexhaustible spring which wells up within to eternal life. This gift Jesus is offering is the pouring out of the Spirit of God into the hearts to bring about life. What started with Jesus asking, give me a drink. Now is the woman asking, sir, give me this water. Though her understanding is still lacking. What reason does she give? Give me this water, she says, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And not seeing Jesus fully, clearly for who he has revealed himself to be and what he is saying, she rather than acknowledging her soul's need and God's true gift remains external with her physical needs and the rest that would come from a few less trips to the well. So to both reveal a bit further Jesus' true identity and to reveal her true need, he takes a turn that might surprise many, but yet is supremely effective as Jesus ministers to this woman. Jesus tells her to call her husband. For the woman, this is a sensitive topic, a loaded topic. I mean, think of the experience she must have gone through, losing one husband after the next to either death or divorce. No doubt she has sinned, and no doubt she's been sinned against. Her soul's needs are being brought to the surface. Secondly, Jesus, in his incomprehensible awareness of her marital history, moves the woman then to perceive that he is a prophet, a prophet of God, a category that uh, Samaritans would have. But is he the prophet that is greater than Moses, as foretold in Deuteronomy? Is he the Messiah, worthy of worship. With her own heart seeing her need and beginning to perceive who Jesus is, she proceeds then to make a statement about worship. Her previous understanding contradicts, she assumes, this man before him, a Jewish man. And again, in this context, Samaria, non-Jewish, Gentile people versus the Jewish people, she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Here we see that her understanding of worship is ultimately tied to place, to geography. So, we've been building throughout this exchange as Jesus has shepherded her to this point. And now we're approaching the climax of the narrative, beginning in verse 21. So how do we get from this encounter to an evangelistic encounter, now to the topic of worship? The linchpin of this text is the gospel. Evangelism flows from and into worship. 
And Jesus speaks to the gospel and how it transforms worship, to which he then explicitly reveals the gospel, the good news that is all about him. His identity is made clear, the Messiah. He is the Son of God. So from this apex, we'll sit for a moment to gaze upon the beauty of the vista. In short, in this this passage where, where Jesus speaks about worship, worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth, where he reveals himself, I am who speaks to you, the Messiah who is called the Christ. He says, too, there is a time coming and is now here where God gives his gifts of his spirit, which wells up to eternal life. And as we'll see, the Spirit of God creates true worshipers of God by illuminating the glories of the Son and His work on our behalf. One of the essential implications of this now for the Samaritan woman understanding of worship and for ours is now because of this, the Spirit will dwell within all who believe Geography no longer matters as it once did for worship at the tabernacle, for instance, in the temple. Just as we see in John and have heard preached recently, Jesus is the new temple. He is the dwelling place of God on earth, heaven on earth. And soon after, that hour is coming, Jesus goes on to say, After Jesus has been glorified and ascended, which comes after that hour, which is his death, he will sit at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms, and he will send his Spirit to all his people, the church, which then will become the dwelling place of God on earth. So the meaning of the hour, the hour that we see here in verse 21 and 23 which Jesus refers to in John again in his gospel, returns to over and over. This is no uncertain term. This hour refers centrally to why Jesus came. It is the death Jesus will face as he eventually turns back to Jerusalem. But why does Jesus respond to this woman in this way? And why does this hour which he speaks of matter to her? This woman, just like us, just like all of us, that the text says was ignorant, ignorant of what she worshipped. You know, as, as, as John begins his gospel, he says, the dark has rejected the light. And here we're seeing darkness, ignorance about who God is. And even when Jesus comes to the light, misunderstandings. We all have the same fundamental problem of rejecting God. The dark has rejected the light. We all have this same problem who all are in Adam, have said no to God, and have walked away forsaking him. You know, very relevant to this passage of Scripture, again, another text from Jeremiah must come to mind, where God says through his prophet, 
He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the source of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, which cannot hold water. Despite this woman and the Samaritans more broadly, they've forsaken God, a right relationship, delight, contentment, fellowship with God. And out of ignorance, turning away, depending on self rather than God, digging cisterns, worshiping created things, depending on self, own strength, she's turned to worship that which she does not know. So how is this remedied? How does she get a right heart to be reconciled with the God that she forsook? Jesus, Jesus is the one who came to this Samaritan woman. Jesus could have ignored her, went on his way, deserted her, abandoned her. Rather, he met her. He met her. He he loves her. This hour that he speaks of, Jesus loves her to the extent to remedy her heart or to meet and satisfy the deepest needs of her souls. He will go on to back to Jerusalem, to be betrayed, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be nailed to a cross, to die, ultimately the death that she deserved, that we deserve because of sin and forsaking God. But Jesus doesn't forsake us. And in fact, in his dying breaths on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning as he recites Psalm 22 on the cross? Out of love, Jesus endured the cross, giving up himself. And out of love, the Father forsook his Son so that he might welcome us back in joyfully into his presence. That he might deal with the problem, the deepest need of our sin, justly. Jesus stood in our place as our substitute on the cross. And this is the message. This good news of God, what he has done for us by sending his son to die and rise again from the grave as the first fruits then of new humanity, new creation. He makes us new. This gospel, when believed, makes true worshipers. It's the only way by the Spirit of God. This good news unrivaled by any other, is the only message that brings the spiritually dead to spiritual life and vitality. It's the only good news that when heard and believed gives eyes of our inner beings to see clearly and rightly God is as he has revealed himself to us. So worship then is marveling at his goodness, his glory, his beauty and resting in his love for us. And this 
shatters any festering or lingering inclinations in our hearts that we can please God by any religious fervor or good works apart from Christ. Christ worshiped the Father in perfect obedience, in his actions and affections, and in Christ alone, by faith alone, we worship God in spirit and truth. So then let me just now share a few convictions from this text, this passage on worship. Jesus says we are to worship the Father in spirit and truth. Why? For the Father is seeking. He desires such worshipers. Verse 23 we see. And, following verse, because ontologically God is who he is. In short, to worship God in truth means to worship him as he has revealed himself in his word. And as he has given himself to us through his spirit which dwells within us. For worship to be true, then therefore the object of our worship must be God himself, as he has revealed himself. Furthermore, true worship is Trinitarian. Verse 24 again, because God is who he says he is. Worship is communion, fellowship with God. True worship is a natural outflow of belief in the gospel that shows the worth of Christ. And worship that is true is then, therefore, gospel-centered, cross-focused, praising, exalting Christ for what he has accomplished in our place, namely redemption, apart from which we would be hopeless in despair. You know, there's much value in tying these convictions on biblical worship to our gathered worship practices at Gospel Life. In our place and in our context that we're in, why we do what we do when we gather for worship, from how we order our service, which we hope and aspire to reflect the story of the Gospel, to why we aspire and desire to be word-focused in our songs, in our prayers, in our preaching, to valuing and aspiring to value beauty in our worship, to aspiring and valuing and desiring to be understandable and evangelistic in our worship. Though I will save that for a time of conversation, such as after the service, I would invite you, I'd love in a time of Q&A to answer any questions, to dialogue about those things. Rather, here in this moment, I'd like to examine one unique and special instance highlighting the beauty of worship in practice for us to consider. And what does it look like then to worship in our normal daily living? Our hearts might be disturbed, stirred up for devotion throughout the rest of the week. And I can think of no better example than one given from the Bible of another woman, Mary, the sister of Mary, of Martha and Lazarus, which is recorded in all four Gospels. She responded to Jesus with a costly, precious gift to show the worth 
of Jesus. Clearly, for who he truly is. What some would deem as unnecessary, even wasteful, Jesus called her act just the opposite. Mako Fujimura is a contemporary artist based in New York. He serves on the um, he served on the National Council of Arts, and uh, let me just read an excerpt from one of his books, which speaks to Martha's acts. Um, it's a longer quote, but he says it far better than I could. So hear what he has to say on this. This in the context right after Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. What was Mary's response to Jesus' tears? Through the veil of her own tears, I suspect she saw in the tears flowing down her Savior's face something of a foreshadowing of his great sacrifice to come. After witnessing her brother rise from the grave and helping to remove strips of linen and unwrap him, she ran home. Perhaps Mary did not even help with the linen, though Martha certainly would have. But she connected her own brother's rising with her master's death to come. In the gospel, moving to worship. Mark records that a woman who John identifies as Mary poured a jar of nard worth a year's wages upon Jesus. And she did not say a word. Imagine a bottle of perfume costing a whole year's wage. In the Gospel of John, we can surmise that Mary had seen her brother Lazarus raised from the grave by Christ. She did what she could and responded with a direct, intuitive, but also intentional act of devotion. This gospel passage seems to point to both the action and the reaction as equally significant, revealing the duality of our own hearts. In John's gospel, Judas, after vehemently objecting with the other disciples, said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Then he betrayed his master. Mary's act was the straw that broke the camel's back, and Judas betrayed the master for 30 pieces of silver, notably less than the value of Mary's perfume. Leave her alone, Christ says, commanding her in front of the indignant disciples. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in her memory. The only earthly possession Christ wore on the cross was the very aroma of the perfume Mary poured upon him. Christ called her act of devotion beautiful, echoing a word that appeared in the original language of Genesis that tells us that God called creation good. What Mary did was good and beautiful. What the disciples deemed as a waste, Jesus called the most necessary act. Our Christian culture seems to shrink from things that seem extravagant. What a waste, we might hear. Though the justification of extravagance has everything to do with the object of our extravagance, the object of our adoration. The problem is not that we do not have an extravagant visual culture. The problem is that we do not believe in an extravagant God. To the degree that we, like Mary, experience the extravagant grace of God, Mako concludes, to that degree we will respond extravagantly back to him.
in response to Mary's beautiful act of devotion, worship? What sorts of reflections might we draw for our own lives, particularly outside of these walls here, for actions that show the worth of Christ in response to who he is and what he's done? How might we extravagantly show the worth of Christ with our unique gifts and abilities? Or at home around the dinner table? How might we show the worth of Christ with our money, our time? How might we extravagantly show the worth of Christ in our culture today to constructively contribute and care for our culture? As one singer-songwriter, Matthew Clark, puts it, what does it look like to make things that make room for people to meet Jesus? So we continue on in the text to see a similar reaction from his disciples. In verse 27, as we've addressed, this exchange between a Jewish man, Jesus, and Samaritan woman would have been scandalous. And so in response, the disciples were surprised to see Jesus with her. A surprise that reveals their own misunderstanding about God's gift. The disciples did not understand who God's gift was for. Other moments that we find ourselves feeling this way in our lives. Maybe to those we look down on in our society or enemies, do we believe that God's compassion could extend to them, that they might receive the gift of salvation? The Samaritan woman goes on to respond differently. After seeing Jesus clearly for who he is, she goes out and says, come and see then to those in her community. Could you imagine her singing as she went? Her distressed and dis despairing heart now filled with hope. Maybe skipping down the road into town in response to this transformational encounter with Jesus. Maybe even imagine her singing these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin in nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. At Gospel Life, every week we desire to proclaim the message of Jesus, to show Jesus' worth because it is the power of God to save, and it is a means of growing as Christians as well. So if you're here and you haven't yet believed, Jesus invites you to come. This morning, he invites you. Trust in him. Receive a drink from him and experience his love that will satisfy your soul. And for both believers and non-believers alike, Hear this invitation as it echoes throughout all the ages. Let the one who is thirsty come. 
And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. May God grant us belief and care and skill to proclaim this invitation of hope, which leads to new creation, to all who will listen. The one who calls us is worthy of our souls, of our lives, and of our alls. Let's pray. Lord, as the psalmist prays, so do we. One thing that we ask for, Lord, that we will seek, that we may dwell in your house all of our days to gaze upon your beauty. In Christ, the true dwelling place of God, we find ourselves, for those who believe in your gospel, united all in one spirit. We can love and now do love our brothers and sisters and neighbors, even our enemies, now only because you first loved us. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know the depth of Christ's love. And may our hearts burn within us. Your precious Son's authority, we pray. Amen.